Welcome everyone. A Scottish-born physician is the author of our newest episodes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He was born in 1859 and it was his medical education that allowed him to observe the most minute detail and utilize diagnostic deduction in his literary creations. No, no Sherlock Holmes today, but a letter from a desperate man. Please tuck in and enjoy part one of the story of B-24. I told my story when I was taken and no one would listen to me. Then I told it again at the trial, the whole thing, absolutely as it happened, without so much as a word added. I said it all out truly, so help me God, all that Lady Mannering said and did, and then all that I had said and done just as it occurred. And what did I get for it? The prisoner put forward a rambling and inconsequential statement, incredible in its details and unsupported by any shred of corroborative evidence. That was what one of the London papers said, and others let it pass as if I made no defense at all. And yet, with my own eyes, I saw Lord Mannering murdered. And I am as guiltless of it as any man on the jury that tried me. Now, sir, you are there to receive the petitions of prisoners. It all lies with you. All I ask is that you read it. Just read it. And then that you make an inquiry or two about the private character of this lady Mannering. If she still keeps the name that she had three years ago, when, to my sorrow and ruin, I came to meet her, You could use a private inquiry agent or a good lawyer and you would soon learn enough to show you that my story is the true one. Think of the glory it would be to you to have all the papers saying that there would have been a shocking miscarriage of justice if it had not been for your perseverance and intelligence. That must be your reward, since I am a poor man and can offer you nothing. But if you don't do it, may you never lie easy in your bed again. May no night pass that you are not haunted by the thought of the man who rots in jail because you have not done the duty which you are paid to do. But you will do it, sir, I know. 
Just make one or two inquiries and you will soon find which way the wind blows. Remember also that the only person who profited by the crime was herself. Since it changed her from an unhappy wife to a rich young widow. There's the end of the string in your hand, and you only have to follow it up and see where it leads to. Mind you, sir, I make no complaint as far as the burglary goes. I don't whine about what I have deserved, and so far I have had no more than I have deserved. Burglary, it was, right enough, and my three years have gone to pay for it. It was shown at the trial that I had had a hand in the Merton Cross business and did a year for that, so my story had the lees, the dregs, attention on that account. A man with a previous con conviction never gets a really fair trial. I own to the burglar burglary, but when it comes to the murder, which brought me a lifer, any judge but Sir James might have given me the gallows, then I tell you that I had nothing to do with it, and that I am an innocent man. And now I'll take that night. The 13th of September, 1894. And I'll give you just exactly what occurred. And may God's hand strike me down if I go one inch over the truth. I had been at Bristol in the summer looking for work. And then I had a notion that I might get something at Portsmouth for I was trained as a skilled mechanic. So I came tramping my way across the south of England and doing odd jobs as I went. I was trying all I knew to keep off the cross, for I had done a year in Exeter jail, and I'd had enough of visiting Queen Victoria. But it's cruel hard to get work when once the black mark is against your name. And... It was all I could do to keep soul and body together. At last, after ten days of wood cutting and stone breaking on starvation pay, I found myself near Salisbury with a couple of shillings in my pocket and my boots and my patience clean wore out. There's an ale house called The Willing Mind, which stands on the road between Blandford and Salisbury, and it was there that night I engaged a bed. I was sitting alone in the tap room, just about closing time, when the innkeeper, Alan his name was, came beside me and began yarning about the neighbors. He was a man that liked to talk and to have someone to listen to his talk. So I sat there smoking and drinking a mug of ale, which he had stood me. 
and I took no great interest in what he said until he began to talk, as the devil would have it, about the riches of Mannering Hall. Meaning the large house on the right before I came to the village, said I, the one that stands in its own park. Exactly, said he, and I am giving all our talk so that you may know that I am telling you the truth and hiding nothing. The long white house with the pillars, said he, at the side of the Blandford Road. Now I had looked at it as I passed, and it had crossed my mind, as such thoughts will, that it was a very easy house to get into, with that great row of ground windows and glass doors. I had put the thought away from me, and now here was this landlord bringing it back with his talk about the riches within. I said nothing, but I listened, and as luck would have it, he would always come back to this one subject. He was a miser young, so you can think about what he is now in his age, said he. Well, he's had some good out of his money. What good can he have had if he does not spend it, said I. Well, it bought him the prettiest wife in England, and that was some good that he got out of it. <laughs> she thought she would have the spending of it, but she knows the difference now. Who was she then? I asked, just for the sake of something to say. She was nobody at all, until the old lord made her his lady, said he. She came up from London way, and some say that she'd been on the stage there, but nobody knew. The old lord, he was away for a year, and when he came home, he brought a young wife back with him, and there she's been ever since. Stevens, the butler, did tell me once that she was the light of the house when first she came. But what with her husband's mean and aggravating way, and what with her loneliness, for he hates to see a visitor within his doors, and what with his bitter words, for he has a tongue like a hornet's sting, her life all went out of her and she became a white, silent creature, moping about the country lanes. Some say that she loved another man, and that it was just the riches of the old lord which tempted her to be false to her lover, and that now she's eating her heart out because she's lost the one without being any nearer to the other. For... She might be the poorest woman in the parish for all the money that she's had the handling of. Well, sir, you can imagine that it did not interest me very much to hear about the quarrels between a lord and a lady. What did it matter to me if she hated the sound of his voice or if he ever put indignity upon her in the hope of breaking her spirit and spoke to her as he would never have dared to speak to one of his servants. The landlord told me of these things, and many more like them. But they passed out of my mind, 
for they were no concern of mine. But what I did want to hear was the form in which Lord Manning kept his riches. Title deeds and stock certificates are but paper, and more danger than profit to the man who takes them. But metal and stones are worth the risk. And then, as if he were answering my very thoughts, the landlord told me of Lord Mannering's great collection of gold medals, that it was the most valuable in the world, and that it was reckoned that if they were put into a stack, the strongest man in the parish would not be able to raise them. Then his wife called him, and he and I went to our beds. I am not arguing to make out a case for myself, but I beg you, sir, to bear all the facts in your mind and to ask yourself whether a man could be more sorely tempted than I was. I make bold to say that there are few who could have held out against it. There I lay on my bed that night, a desperate man, without hope or work, and with my last shilling in my pocket. I had tried to be honest, and honest folk had turned their backs upon me. They taunted me for theft, and yet they pushed me towards it. I was caught in the stream and could not get out. And then it was such a chance. The great house, all lined with windows, the golden medals, which could easily be melted down. It was like putting a loaf before a starving man and expecting him not to eat it. I fought against it for a time, but it was no use. At last, I sat up on the side of my bed and I swore that that night I should either be a rich man and able to give up crime forever, or that the irons should be on my wrists once more. Hmm. Then I slipped on my clothes, and having put a shilling on the table, for the landlord had treated me well, and I did not wish to cheat him, I passed out through the window into the garden of the inn. There was a high wall round this garden, and I had a job to get over it. But once on the other side, it was all plain sailing. I did not meet a soul upon the road, and the iron gate of the avenue was open. No one was moving at the lodge. The moon was shining, and I could see the great house glimmering white through an archway of trees. I walked up it for a quarter of a mile or so until I was at the edge of the drive where it ended in a broad graveled space before the main door. There I stood in the shadow 
and looked at the long building with a full moon shining in every window and silvering the high stone front. I crouched there for some time and I wondered where I should find the easiest entrance. The corner window of the side seemed to be the one which was least overlooked and a screen of ivy hung heavily over it. My best chance was evidently there. I worked my way under the trees to the back of the house and then crept along in the black shadow of the building. A dog barked and rattled his chain, but I stood waiting until he was quiet. And then I stole on once more until I came to the window which I had chosen. It is astonishing how careless they are in the country, in places far removed from large towns where the thought of burglars never enters their heads. I call it setting temptation in a poor man's way when he puts his hand meaning no harm, upon a door and finds it swing open before him. In this case, it was not so bad as that. But the window was merely fastened with the ordinary catch, which I opened with a push from the blade of my knife. I pulled up the window as quickly as possible and then I thrust the knife through the slit in the shutter and prized it open. They were folding shutters, and I shoved them before me and walked into the room. Good evening, sir. You are very welcome, said a voice. I've had some starts in my life, but never one to come up to that one. There. In the opening of the shutters, within reach of my arm, was standing a woman with a small coil of wax taper burning in her hand. She was tall and straight and slender, with a beautiful white face that might have been cut out of clear marble. But her hair and eyes were as black as night. She was dressed in some sort of white dressing gown which flowed down to her feet. And what with this robe and what with her face, it seemed as if a spirit from above was standing in front of me. My knees knocked together, and I held onto the shutter with one hand to give me support. I should have turned and run away if I'd had the strength. But I could only just stand and stare at her. She soon brought me back to myself once more. Don't be frightened, said she. And they were strange words for the mistress of a house to have to use to a burglar. I saw you out of my bedroom window when you were hiding under those trees. So I slipped downstairs, and then I heard you at the window. I should have opened it for you if you'd waited, but you managed it yourself just as I came up. 
I still held in my hand the long clasp knife with which I had opened the shutter. I was unshaven and grimed from a week on the roads. Altogether, there are few people who would have cared to face me alone at one in the morning. But this woman, if I had been her lover meeting her by appointment, could not have looked upon me with a more welcoming eye. She laid her hand upon my sleeve and drew me into the room. What's the meaning of this, ma'am? Don't, don't get trying any little games upon me, said I. I tried in my roughest way, and I can put it on rough when I like. It'll be the worst for you if you play me any trick, I added, showing her my knife. I will play you no trick, said she. On the contrary, I am your friend, and I wish to help you. Excuse me, ma'am, but I find it hard to believe that, said I. Why should you wish to help me? I have my own reasons, said she. And then suddenly, with those black eyes blazing out of her white face, it's because I hate him, hate him, I hate him. Now you understand. I remembered what the landlord had told me, and I did understand. I looked at her ladyship's face, and I knew that I could trust her. She wanted to revenge herself upon her husband. She wanted to hit him where it would hurt him most, upon the pocket. She hated him so that she would even lower her pride to take such a man as me into her confidence if she could gain her end by doing so. I've hated some folk in my time, but I don't think I ever understood what hate was until I saw that woman's face in the light of the taper. You'll trust me now, she said, with another coaxing touch upon my sleeve. Yes, your ladyship. You know me, then. I can guess who you are. I dare say my wrongs are the talk of the county. But what does he care for that? He only cares for one thing in the whole world, and that you can take from him this night. Have you a bag? No, your ladyship. Shut the shutter behind you. Then no one can see the light. You were quite safe. The servants all asleep, all sleep in the other window, the other wing. I can show you where all the most valuable things are. You cannot carry them all, so we must pick the best. The room in which I found myself was long and low, with many rugs and skins scattered about on a polished wood floor. Small cases stood here and there, and the walls were decorated with spears and swords and paddles and other things which find their way into museums. There were some queer clothes, too, which had been brought from savage countries, and the lady took down a large leather sack bag. 
from among them. This sleeping sack will do, said she. Now come with me, and I will show you where the metals are. It was like a dream to me to think that this tall white woman was the lady of the house and that she was lending me a hand to rob her own home. I could have burst out laughing at the thought of it. And yet there was something in that pale face of hers which stopped my laughter and turned me cold and serious. She swept on in front of me like a spirit with the green taper in her hand and I walked behind with my sack until we came to a door at the end of this museum. It was locked, but the key was in it and she led me through. The room beyond was a small one, hung all round with curtains which had pictures on them. It was the hunting of a deer that was painted on it, as I remember, and in the flicker of that light, <coughs> you'd have sworn that the dogs and the horses were streaming round the walls. The only other thing in the room was a row of cases made of walnut with brass ornaments. They had glass tops, and beneath this glass, I saw the long lines of those gold medals, some of them as big as a plate and half an inch thick, all resting upon red velvet and glowing and gleaming in the darkness. My fingers were just itching to be at them and I slipped my knife under the lock of one of the cases to wrench it open. Wait a moment, said she, laying her hand upon my arm. You might do better than this. I am very well satisfied, ma'am, said I, and much obliged to your ladyship for kind assistance. You can do better, she repeated. Would not golden sovereigns be worth more to you than these things? Why, yes, said I. That's best of all. Well, said she, he sleeps just above our head. It is but one short staircase. There is a tin box with money enough to fill this bag under his bed. Well, how can I get it without waking him? What matters if he does wake? She looked very hard at me as she spoke. You could keep him from calling out. No, no, ma'am, I'll have none of that. Just as you like, said she. I thought that you were a stout-hearted sort of man by your appearance, but I see that I made a mistake. If you are afraid to run the risk of one old man, then, of course, you cannot have the gold which is under his bed. You would best judge of your own business. But I should think that you would do better at some other trade. I'll not have murder on my conscience. Oh, you could overpower him without harming him. I never said anything of murder. The money lies under the bed. But if you are faint-hearted, it is better that you should not attempt it. She worked upon me so, partly with her scorn, and partly with this money that 
she held before my eyes, that I believe I should have yielded and taken my chances upstairs had it not been that I saw her eyes following the struggle within me in such a crafty, malignant fashion that it was evident she was bent upon making me the tool of her revenge and that she would leave me no choice but to do the old man an injury or to be captured by him.